You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. You guys, we did it! We reached the end of 2022, and this will be our final episode of the year. Final episode of this year. We will be back on January 18th with brand new episodes, because right now we're taking our three-week holiday break. But we still have one more case for you to round out 2022. Yeah, we talked about hostage situations in the past that occurred during Christmas. Mm-hmm. Home invasions. Kidnappings. Yeah, that was bad. But this year, we want to talk to you about the spooky fuckery side of the holidays and talk to you about a haunting. I'm just thinking Tilda's going to be so disappointed she doesn't like it when we talk about the hauntings, but it's going <laughs> to be all right. Because this is one of the best documented hauntings we have ever come across. Yes, absolutely. I know there are a lot of skeptics among our listeners. I was one as well. And to be honest, I'm still not sure what to think of this story. You know, was it real? Was it fake? Are there scientific explanations for it? I don't know. But it sure is one very impressive haunting. It is. Over the years, we have talked about a couple of hauntings, right? Haven't we? Yeah, we have. Apart from our Halloween episodes, We had the Greenbrier ghost, the ghost Mm -hmm. of Abraham Lincoln haunting Mm -hmm. that dress covered in his blood. There was the infamous Enfield poltergeist, the very busy afterlives of the six wives of Henry VIII. I know there have been more, but this one is, it's intense. It's kind of life-changing, life-affirming, you know, not only for the people who lived through it, but for many who have since read about this case, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So, this all took place in 1988 in New York City. And I don't think that we need to tell you a lot about New York City. Contrary to what some people believe, New York City is not the capital of the state of New York. That's Albany. But it is not only the most populated city in the state, it's the most populated city in the whole United States, with 8.8 million people living on about 425 square miles, which is about 778 square kilometers. And that also makes it the most densely populated city in the United States. Just look at the real estate prices. We don't need to tell you. You know. Everyone knows. And with almost 9 million inhabitants, it has more than double the population of the second most populated U.S. city, Los Angeles. New York is arguably the most famous city in the world. And the following comes from our good friends at Wikipedia, who write, quote, New York City lies at the southern tip of New York State and constitutes the geographical and demographic center of both the Northeast Megapolis and the New York metropolitan area, the largest metropolitan area in the world by urban land mass. With over 20.1 million people in its metropolitan statistical area and 23.5 million in its combined statistical area as of 2020... Oh boy, they're really getting me hot about those uh, combined statistical areas. Uh, New York is one of the world's most populous megacities. Yeah, we got it. There's a lot of people in New York, Wikipedia. (laughs) And over 50 million, 58 million people live within 250 miles, which is 400 kilometers of the city. 
New York City is a global cultural, financial, entertainment, and media center with a significant influence on commerce, healthcare, life sciences, research, technology, education, politics, tourism, dining, art, fashion, sports. It is home to the headquarters of the United Nations. New York is an important center for international diplomacy, an established safe haven for global investors, and is sometimes described as the capital of the world. The city and its metropolitan area constitute the premier gateway for legal immigration into the United States. As many as 800 languages are spoken in New York, making it the most linguistically diverse city in the world. New York City is home to more than 3.2 million residents born outside the United States, the largest foreign-born population of any city in the world as of 2016. As of 2022, the New York metropolitan area is estimated to produce a gross metropolitan product of over $2.1 trillion, ranking it first worldwide. If the New York metropolitan area were a sovereign state, it would have the eighth largest economy in the world. As of 2022, New York is home to the highest number of billionaires and millionaires of any city, and in 2017, was the wealthiest city in the world. New York City was the capital of the United States from 1785 until 1890, and has been the largest U.S. city since 1790. The Statue of Liberty greeted millions of immigrants as they came to the U.S. by ship in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and is a symbol of the United States and its ideals of liberty and peace. In 2019, New York City was voted as the greatest city in the world per a survey of over 30,000 people from 48 cities worldwide, citing its cultural diversity. End quote. Okay, now let's talk about some more interesting facts about New York City. Here we go. New York was originally called, it's, how do you not sing this, right? It was originally called New Amsterdam because the Dutch had settled on the island of Manhattan before it was handed over to the English. Everyone who listens to They Might Be Giants knows that. And if you don't listen to They Might Be Giants, maybe think about it. New York's history is very interesting, but that would be, honestly, I'm sure that's its own podcast already somewhere. Yeah. 22% of New York's, New York City, when I say New York, I'm talking about the city. 22% of New York City's land area is dedicated to public parks, which leads to 99% of inhabitants of New York City living within walking distance to a park. Most people can reach a park in 10 minutes or less, which is Which great. I find amazing. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's, yeah. The New York City Public Library is the second largest library in the, in the United States, you know, I just realized I've never been there. I'm familiar with it, of course, because of the brilliant cinematic masterpiece that is The Day After Tomorrow. And Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters. But they spend a lot of time in the library in The Day After Tomorrow. Yeah. Is it The Day After True. Tomorrow? Yeah. I think so, yeah. And uh, I have been to the Library of Congress, which is in Washington, D.C., with my friend Sylvia when she was making her film. If you find yourself in D.C., quick sidebar. That is, honest to God, one of the most beautiful buildings I have ever been in. Like, if you have a chance to just pop into the Library of Congress, go. Just go. You're welcome. Okay. Which is the biggest one in yes, the United States, Yes, that's the right? biggest one. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I looked into getting married at the Boston Public Library. We could not afford it. But the New York Public Library has 55 million books. Some of them are, of course, priceless artifacts of literature. The Brooklyn Bridge is actually older than London's Tower Bridge, and it's one of the oldest bridges in the country. Also, it was completed by a woman. 
Emily Warren Roebling. Her husband was an engineer, and his health failed, so she stepped in and finished the bridge, which had been designed by her father-in-law and engineered by her husband. He had, there was a terrible um, sort of accident while building the bridge. Long story short, there was a fire. He ended up getting the bends. He got decompression sickness that left him completely bedridden. And so she basically finished building the Brooklyn Bridge for him. It's, it's pretty amazing for that time for a woman to have done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, New York City is one of the best bird-watching cities in the United States. Out of more than 800 North American birds, 275 have been spotted in Central Park. If you walk around any public park in the city, chances are you will see bird-watchers or, you know, perverts pretending to be (laughs) bird-watchers. Speaking of Central Park, I don't think everybody realizes how big it actually is. It is 843 acres. It's bigger than Monaco. It's big. Real big. This is for you, Johanna. You already know all of this, I'm sure. Central Park is the most filmed location in the entire world. In total, more than 530 movie and TV scenes were shot in Central Park. Here are some of the most famous ones. The Apartment, Marathon Man, Hair, Ghostbusters, The Fisher King, Home Alone 2, Made in Manhattan, Elf, Enchanted, Cloverfield, Sex in the City, The Avengers, and many, many more. Many more. So many more. I actually did know that, and I also know that New York City is home to a thriving TV and motion picture production business. This is from nyc.gov. Quote, in 2019, the film and television industry in New York City supported approximately 185,000 total jobs, $18.1 billion in total wages, and $81.6 billion in total output. In 2019, New York City's film and television industry was directly responsible for 100,200 jobs, $12.2 billion in wages and $64.1 billion in direct economic output. That's a lot of money. It's a lot. The industry has added roughly 35,000 direct jobs over the last 15 years, 3% annual growth compared to 2% citywide. Industry professionals earn an average of $121,000 in annual wages, that's 33% higher than the citywide average of $91,000. Uh, and the wages have grown at a rate of 2% annually, keeping pace with the city's overall wage growth rate. The industry supports an additional 37,900 jobs, $2.9 billion in wages, and $8.2 billion in economic output by way of indirect economic impacts. So that's transactions with suppliers and vendors. So there's a lot of other industries depending on the film industry in New York City. Oh yeah, it's a giant giant uh, chart, flow chart there. The industry also supports an additional 46,900 jobs, $3.1 billion in wages, and $9.3 billion in economic output through induced economic impacts, which are created when job holders, both directly and indirectly supported by the industry, spend their wages in New York City. End quote. I'd say that also includes uh, tourists that go there just because they saw it in some kind of movie. Like if I would go there and want to see the lions in front of the library because I saw it in Ghostbusters, for example, right? Yes, definitely. And it's funny because I usually go there for Broadway. 
um, more than Mm. anything. But then whenever I'm there with somebody, they always want to go and see some spot that was in a TV show or a movie they saw. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. So there is a plethora of sound stages, production companies, and TV stations in New York City. And in 1988, one of the biggest TV stations was IBC. And please, don't confuse it with the Philippine TV network IBC. We're talking about IBC in New York. The head of the IBC network was Preston Rhinelander at the time, a visionary man, well ahead of his time. Mm. He was the first to realize that people love their pets and that they are willing to not only spend a lot of money on them, but also that they would schedule their lives around them. If he could get cats and dogs to watch his channels, people would probably have the TV on, even if they weren't home. So some of Preston's most genius ideas were a detective show, so much like Kojak, but instead of licking a lollipop, the main character would constantly dangle a piece of yarn. And of course, dormice. Dormice everywhere. I don't think you can ever really underestimate the importance of dormice. Opus really does enjoy watching TV, and we always leave the television on for him when we leave him alone. You see? Yeah. He was a genius. He genius. knew all of that already in 1988. Genius. Everybody thought he was going bonkers. Absolutely. In 1988, a man named Francis Xavier Cross was the president of IBC. Frank, which is how most people referred to him, although often only behind his back, was born in 1951 as the oldest son of Earl and Doris Cross. Five years later, in 1956, their second son, James, was born. Earl was working hard at his job at the meat factory to give his family the life that they deserved. Was he the most affectionate and emotionally available father? No. But was he eager to teach his sons about how hard life was and that no one would hand anything to them? Yes. Also, he didn't approve of excuses. Frank Cross was a real genius when it came to all things TV. His passion started when he was a toddler. He spent most of the day laying on the floor of the living room, way too close to the TV set, watching his favorite shows. He watched so much TV, in fact, that at times the lines between his own life and fiction that he watched on TV would sort of blur. But it did help to make him one of the youngest employees at IBC ever. He started out as a very old-looking 17-year-old, working for Lou Hayward at IBC. Frank was working so hard, he wouldn't even join his co-workers at the office Christmas party. But, you know, you're not going to build a career by photocopying your ass. You make a career by putting on the giant dog costume of Frisbee the dog, and then you crawl around on all fours and you roll around with that bone, you lucky bastard. And that's what Frank Cross did. He worked his way up. And after Lou had suffered a fatal heart attack on the golf course in 1981, he took over his mentor's position at IBC and thus became the youngest TV station president in the history of TV. Again, kind of an old-looking 30 at the time. It was the 80s. People looked old. Everybody looked old. So much cocaine. Frank had even received the Humanitarian of the Year Award for his inspiring and giving broadcasting choices. After all, it was under his patronage that IBC came up with such amazing shows like The Night the Reindeer Dies with Lee Majors, Bob Goulet's old-fashioned Cajun Christmas, and, of course, Father Loves Beaver. 
After all, it was IBC who put the Yule in You'll Love It. But the jewel in the IBC crown was the upcoming live broadcast of Scrooge, based on Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, broadcasted simultaneously via satellite from New York, Bethlehem, Helsinki, West Berlin, and the Great Barrier Reef. Hosted by America's favorite old fart, Sir John Houseman, and starring Buddy Hackett, Jamie Farr, the Solid Gold Dancers, and their nipples, and Mary Lou Retton as Tiny Tim. Yeah, for those of you who don't know Mary Lou Retton, she was one of the most popular athletes at the time after she won a gold medal, two silver medals, and two bronze medals in the gymnastic competitions of the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. When she was suggested to play Tiny Tim in this megalotastic TV production, the director didn't want to cast her. But you know how it is. Children love an acrobat. And so the director soon realized that she was the perfect choice. Yes. She wouldn't simply throw away the crutches as Tiny Tim. Oh no. She would throw away the crutches, vault a lamppost, and then double somersault into this sort of, you know, the gymnast landing position. Chest out, arms back. Nailed it. Stick the landing. Absolutely fantastic. But what was even more fantastic, the promo Frank Cross had come up with for this international TV event of the decade. In this ad, the viewers were reminded of the importance and true meaning of Christmas. Why not spend Christmas Eve at home in front of the TV where you wouldn't need to be scared of acid rain, drug addiction, international terrorism and freeway killers? Viewers knew watching Scrooge was essential and that their lives might just depend on it. The ad was so exciting that it had to be run with a warning that people with a heart condition should leave the room after it might have been a contributing factor of the death of an 80-year-old grandmother who had just keeled over while watching the promo one evening on IBC. Yeah, but you really can't buy publicity like this, can you? No, you can't. So good. Of course, being such a career guy came with a price tag, and it would soon show that the price Frank would have to pay for how he had led his life was even bigger than he had anticipated. First of all, over the years Frank had distanced himself from his younger brother James. Honestly, ah, James was such a sweetheart. He and his wife Wendy would frequently host game nights. They would often play Trivial Pursuit, which is my favorite game, of course. Mine too, one of them. He would make handcrafted gifts for Frank, for example, a handmade photo frame. And no, not with pasta and glitter glued on it, but a beautiful carved wooden frame with an old photo of them from when they were kids. And James and Wendy would constantly invite Frank, but he never came over. James really loved his older brother, but all he ever got in return over the last years was rejection. And a VCR. Yeah, but that last one wasn't even a Christmas gift from Frank, but from his overworked assistant, Grace Cooley. Frank would have only put his brother on the list for an IBC towel. He didn't care. In all fairness, though, even Colonel Parker, yes, that Colonel Tom Parker, as in Elvis' manager, he too received one of these coveted IBC monogrammed towels. I think it's a practical gift and can only be topped by a Jelly of the Month subscription. I don't know. It might be a great present for a greedy manager, but for a brother? Or even worse, instead of a Christmas bonus for an employee who really relies on the money to support their family? I don't know. I'd say it's the worst Christmas bonus ever, even if you can dry your hair with it. And honestly, Grace was an amazing assistant. She's gorgeous. She Mm. is... She just manages things. She's the kind of person 
I wish I was. She has her act together. She deserved so much more. She had to put up with a lot of bad attitude, and I mean bad attitude, from Frank over the years. She constantly had to pour him his favorite drink. Mm, Stolichnaya, which is also my favorite vodka. Mm, do you also drink it with a few drops of Tab? Uh, no, I used to drink it with uh, Coke Zero, actually. Mm. So I can kind of relate to his choice. I like raspberry yeah. vodka with cranberry juice and a splash of sour. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. I was just having a moment where I was envisioning the two of us at a bar ordering our drinks. and Wouldn't that be nice? Then we could take a picture together and put it in that <sighs> picture frame with pasta and glitter <laughs> on it that I made for you. I'm worried you're going to be disappointed in now. But Grace, she was the best. The best. She fixed his ties, she pulled up his pants, she made him look presentable, and she was constantly working late so that he could work late, even if it meant canceling a doctor's appointment. And we all know what a pain in the ass it is to even get a doctor's appointment in the first place. But she needed that job to feed her family. She was a single mom, a widow with five kids, two boys, and three girls, and she had her own mother living with them. And even worse, the youngest, Calvin, who was born in 1983, had not said a single word since his father had been killed right in front of him. Frank Cross really took all of her hard work for granted. But then again, he was just the kind of guy who would fire an employee just a few days before Christmas simply for disagreeing with him. Are you talking about Elliot Loudermilk? You know I'm talking about Elliot Loudermilk. Yeah. Elliot made the huge mistake of criticizing Frank's Scrooge promo and was immediately removed from the building. After being fired, poor Elliot lost everything. His wife left him, he ended up wandering the streets of New York, plotting his revenge, and thinking of the best way to kill his former boss. I think maybe now is the perfect moment to take a quick break for this week's sponsor, The Art of Crime. This podcast is hosted by Gavin Whitehead, who is a great host and narrator. Trust me, the show's audio quality is top-notch. Speaking of audio quality, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the wonderful Liam Bellman Sharp, who wrote a unique script for each episode of the first season. I'm really jealous of this podcast. I enjoy this podcast, but also... I, I covet their things. Professional envy. Yes. From a our lot. side. Because it's so good, really. Yeah. So good. The Art of Crime podcast deals with the history, art, and crime. More specifically, in season one, the horrific murders of the killer known as Jack the Ripper and the many artists who have been linked to the case and viewed as possible suspects over the years. From actors, poets, painters, and a master of disguise, Gavin will tell you everything about who these artists were, what sort of artistic mark they've left on the world, and how they became suspects in some of the most depraved and grisly crimes in our history. And Gavin handles this topic professionally and respectfully, devoting time to discuss who the victims of these crimes were and reminding us they were real women and not just the graphic crime scene photos that come to one's mind when discussing this terrible case. Gavin really brings you back in time and frames the context of these crimes brilliantly in a similar way to The Suspicion of Mr. Witcher. So if you were a fan of that book or show, you'll love The Art of Crime. Or, for example, if you enjoyed the book The Devil in the White City about H.H. Holmes, who is often referred to as the first serial killer in the USA, even though listeners of our podcast know that he probably wasn't. Mm. What I'm trying to say is, if you are into crime and history of the Victorian era, and of course you are because you're listening to us, then this podcast is for you. After finishing this episode, go and search The Art of Crime and subscribe immediately. Your life might just depend on it. 
and you have to visit the show's webpage, artofcrimepodcast.com. It's beautiful. It contains show notes, transcripts, fascinating old photos and documents for each episode. It really does bring the people he's talking about to life. It's it's a great website. I'm a fan. This holiday season, as you settle into wrapping presents, go find the Art of Crime podcast to keep you company. You'll find it on your favorite podcast app. And also follow them on Instagram at Art of Crime Pod. Or like and follow their Facebook page called Art of Crime Podcast. It's got fantastic old images and information on the suspects and their art. It's beautiful. Go check it out. That's Art of Crime Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Now I think it's time to get into the spooky fuckery part. Mm. I think you all understand by now what kind of person Frank Cross was. Where once there might have been a hint of kindness and love was now nothing more than greed and disdain for his fellow human beings. He had even lost the love of his life over his choices and priorities. Yeah, and she was great and so pretty. Doesn't she... She reminds me a little bit of that actress that was in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. Just that, like, natural beauty. And so nice. So nice. Yeah, let's talk about her a little bit. Frank Cross had met Claire Phillips on 24th of December, 1968. So again, when he was 17. And he fell for her immediately, literally, because she had hit him on the head with a door when they first met. She was the only woman Frank ever liked and trusted enough to give her 12 sharp knives. Ginsu knives at that that would cut a tin can just as easily as a tomato or a penis. (laughs) Claire and Frank moved in together, and for a while they really had a wonderful life. Even though the two couldn't be more different, like Claire was the kind of person who had a swing in her kitchen, Uh, she smoked pot in her bathtub, and um, she could never button her coat correctly. She's me. She's basically me, but like prettier and more organized and more selfless. Yeah, she was a real humanitarian. She was working with homeless people at Project Reach Out. And even though opposites attract, once Frank's career was starting to advance, Frank and Claire kind of drifted apart. And now Frank, who had everything when it came to his professional life, was left with nothing in his private life. I don't even think he had any hobbies other than treating people badly on his way up and on his way down. The only book he probably ever read was the Kama Sutra, and I guess he only looked at the pictures. And I don't think he even liked music. Like, he was the kind of guy who wouldn't recognize Miles Davis if he ran him over in the street. His job was everything for him. Yes, but even when it came to work, we shouldn't forget that Frank's position was actually threatened by this L.A. slimeball who went to school with Preston Rhinelander's son and was now looking to replace Frank Cross as president. Yeah. Can you imagine the level of stress Frank must have been under? I mean, he has this ginormous live TV spectacle that he has to work on. He can't fail there. Then he has a younger man coming in trying to replace him. It's too much. It's the kind of thing that would have you start melting down in a fancy French restaurant. No doubt about it. Right. And also for for our younger listeners, can we just take a second to all remember what what TV was like in the 80s? There was like maybe you had a VCR and could set it to record stuff. But for the most part, if you missed it, you missed it. It was gone yeah. forever. You'd be out of the conversation at work the next day. People really kind of did make plans around television schedules. Television schedules. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. sort of ran the show. I don't think we can underestimate that true fact about life at that time, right? So yeah, 
huge pressure. So many people are going to be watching this enormous live production, but it's going to get worse for Frank because that is when all the haunting and ghosty stuff start happening. You know how people think that people who don't believe in ghosts are more rational about dying and the possibility of an afterlife and how there are people who think that they would never, ever, ever experience a haunting or an apparition. I think it's safe to say Frank Cross was one of them. He was as much a non-believer in the paranormal as you could find, but he was about to find himself experiencing a very extreme and violent form of haunting. The first thing that happened was he was alone in his office late at night, when all of a sudden... There was loud banging on the door. And not just banging, the door was being smashed in from the other side. Like someone was hitting it with a baseball bat or a golf club. And then the door burst open and in walks the heavily decomposed body of Frank's former boss and best friend, Lou Hayward. Okay, can we just pause here real quick and talk about this kind of haunting? Mm. I'm no expert, but isn't that kind of unusual? We know there are mainly two different kind of ha kind of hauntings, like residual and intelligent, right? Like residual is like watching a recording of something over and over again, like a rerun, and the apparition has no awareness of its surroundings. And then the intelligent one is when ghosts are actually aware of their surrounding and they can interact with things and people. And then, of course, we have poltergeister and demons. But this one, from the aggressiveness, mm. it sounds like an intelligent haunting. Maybe even a poltergeist, but then having a rotting corpse appear, that's so unusual, yeah. super weird. And wouldn't that almost point in the demon direction? Well, I agree. I think there, there's, there's, there is a demon possibility. Also, I don't know if we can rule out some kind of zombification scenario, some kind of black magic kind of a situation. <gasps> True. I don't know, I but also, this may be the way this ghost wants to appear, for shock value, as his body is now, like, it's not how I would choose, like, if I, if I go next week, I'm coming back as, like, I don't know, 22 is a pretty good year for me, yeah. <laughs> you know. Can we choose as ghosts? I mean, can ghosts choose? I always thought they're stuck with... Well, there's different theories, right? Are you stuck looking like how you looked when you died, or can you mm. appear how you want to appear? I prefer the appear-as-you-want-to-appear kind of. Well, it would make more sense to appear in certain ways to different people, right? Because if you want to appear to someone you knew in high school, then that's what you'd want to look like. You don't want to look like they wouldn't recognize me now. True. I don't know. I like that variability. I think it's, I think it's good. But who can say? We don't really know what his motives were, but it's a very disturbing apparition, and it's definitely meant to get Frank's attention, right? Because it's, mm. it's not good. So I think we will need to look at some other events before we get back into the what was going on situation. We're going to circle back. We're going to come back to this. So the corpse of Lou just casually pours himself a drink. And then he warns Frank that if he's not going to change his ways, he's going to end up doomed. And that three more ghosts would visit Frank before Christmas Eve was over to help him turn his life around. Then Lou grabs Frank by the neck and... Well, he just dangles him out the window of the IBC skyscraper, all the while laughing like a maniac, as you do. I would have peed my pants. There's so many 
How many times has someone been dangled out of a skyscraper? Anyhow, I'm sure Frank also peed a little bit. I think I would too. And when he comes to again, he finds himself on the floor of his office. And then the weirdest thing happens. His phone automatically dials a phone number. And again, kids, we're not talking about butt dialing on your cell phone, which I do to people all the time, or Siri listening in on you and calling a number for you. No, no, we are talking about a 1980s button dial phone. It couldn't have dialed a number by itself, but it did. And what's a surprise? It's Claire Phillips' old number, and she doesn't pick up, but her answering machine does, and so Frank Cross leaves a slightly disturbing message on his ex-girlfriend's answering machine. But, I mean, who hasn't? Okay, stop. Do yeah. we really believe that auto-dial story? Or isn't there a more plausible explanation? Like, he got scared, maybe even thought he was going to die, and he calls, you know, the one who got away, but then he got embarrassed and makes up a whole ghost story just so that he wouldn't have to admit that he called her after, I don't know, was it 15 years or 19 years? Wouldn't be the worst fake story I've ever heard. I heard of people faking their own death and moving away so that they wouldn't have to have the breakup talk. Yeah, that's a good idea, actually. I, I think that's what happened. And not, not that, that she faked his own death. I think that, <laughs> I, I think that that's, I think he faked a fake, fake auto dial. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness, I don't know what happened to my phone. <laughs> Are you up? It's like 2 a.m. What's happening? Whoopsie daisies. You know how it goes. And Claire, obviously, she's worried enough. He sounds, he sounds alarmed enough for her to get in touch with, with Frank the next day after she hears the message. Although maybe it would have been better for her to stay away because immediately Frank starts a kind of carrot on a stick thing, pulls her clothes, pushes her away. Very typical toxic relationship behavior, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's under a lot of pressure, and he's just had a really traumatic ghostly encounter the night before. So, let's huh. say we believe his story about what happened that night, everything that happened happened, and now Frank is anxiously awaiting the three ghosts that Lou had threatened him with, and he wouldn't have to wait for long. After what seems like a total breakdown in a fancy French restaurant, the one we mentioned before, again, not judging, who hasn't, he hails a cab, and this cab. So, Paul and I once tried to take a cab from Grand Central Station in New York City to the World Trade Center Memorial. I would say those are two of the most known places in New York City, yes? Yeah. Friend in Austria? Grand Central Station, World Trade Center. Yeah, definitely. Right? Not only did our driver not know how to get there, Paul ended up having to pull it up on, like, Google Maps, and we had to give the guy turn-by-turn -turn directions to get us there. In New York City. It's not like London, where black cab drivers have essentially, like, a PhD in maps of London and the surrounding boroughs. No. You never know what you're going to get when you get into a fucking New York cab. It is terrifying. Is the cabbie smoking and drinking in the cab? Probably, but that's normal. In city cabs, what's that smell? Nobody. Nobody knows. They expect the smell. But nobody? Nobody expects ghosts. And you know it's a ghost because the law of physics no longer apply. Rather than a head-on collision with a bus, they pass right through it, and suddenly Frank is in his childhood home on Christmas Eve, watching his younger self, 
His mother is pregnant with his little brother. And we talked earlier about residual versus intelligent hauntings. And I think what's interesting about this very particular situation that Frank is experiencing is how complex it is. Because you have an intelligent haunt, a ghost who is somehow able to speak to Frank, interact with Frank, take Frank into a residual memory, transport him into a time in his life that already transpired. So he's experiencing a residual haunting with an intelligent ghost. Mm. Right? It's a lot. It's a lot of... It's a lot. Mm. Yeah. So he's back in his childhood home and reminded of the Christmas when, rather than the choo-choo train, he got five pounds of veal. Uh, yeah, he also is reminded of all the times in his past when he has let Claire down, you know. Kind of the way he was let down as a child. I mean, we know how this kind of things work, right? This adult man with a perm and a mullet has the audacity to be rude to the love of his life again and again and to choose work over her. I mean, I get it. Work is important. Yes. But finally, she has had enough. But you know what? Frank doesn't care. When he wants a wife, he'll buy one. And then suddenly he's back in the real world and he finds himself outside the shelter where Claire works. And while he's waiting at the shelter, some of the residents mistake him for Richard Burton, who's, for our younger listeners, who was a very famous actor, husband of Elizabeth Taylor, just saying. Twice, right? Was it Burton Burton? Yes, yeah. twice Burton Burton. And these residents of the shelter, they won't leave him alone. I don't know why they think he's, he's Richard Burton. They keep wanting him to say certain phrases, act out scenes from the famous movies he's in, like when he's playing Mark Anthony. Thankfully, Frank could remember when in the not-too-distant past, the comedian Bill Murray, who I love and adore, on Saturday Night Live had done a whole bit where he imitated Richard Burton. So he was sort of able to remember that, and apparently Frank's impression of Bill Murray impersonating Richard Burton worked out well for him. I was lucky. What didn't work out was his interaction with Claire, who was still being pushed around by her ex. Frank. So now Frank is in a huff back to the studio and he's met with not Glenda the Good Witch, but just she's sort of an incredibly clumsy and rather violent ghost of Christmas present. I don't think she was trying to be violent. You don't think so? Mm, I think her love language is Three Stooges style slapstick. And I think there's only so much you can do with that. If you've ever spent time with a five-year-old, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, so she takes him to his assistant Grace's house. This is where he learns that the woman who looks after him all day, every day, has a smart young son who has not spoken a word since seeing his father killed in front of him and a large loving family dependent on her paycheck to put food on the table. Then they're off to his brother James's house, where the rest of his brother's friends and his wife are asking why he always invites his brother to Christmas, even though he never comes. And the VCR that arrived was the first decent gift that has ever been sent. But it's clear that Frank's brother loves him and misses him and just really sincerely hopes he's going to come for Christmas dinner some year. So that leaves us with one final ghost experience. And this is the scariest of all. This is the mm. ghost who can see the future. And he sees the hurt he has caused on what could best be described as a Tower of Terror-style elevator ride. He sees the consequences his actions have on Grace's family, on her son, 
Maybe, worst of all, what an incredible bitch Claire had become, thanks to him. So many tragic scenes that he could have prevented. But like the fucking stereotypical 80s yuppie he is, his heart didn't soften until he realized that he would burn for his actions. And then he cared. Yeah, that was a real epidemic in the 80s of kind of asshole yuppies who then all of a sudden had a change of heart. Mm. They were everywhere. You couldn't throw a stone without hitting one. It's true. It's true. Okay, so what do we think? Was this a case of real hauntings? Was it really ghosts or demons that tormented Frank for a whole night? Hmm, well, there are a lot of theories about what could have happened here, and now I'm excited to get into them. So, food poisoning, possibly a bad clam, something he ate. It's possible. I talked about it before, I think. I once was poisoned by a clam, and it was seriously one of the worst things I ever experienced. I really, I really thought I was going to die. Hmm. If it was a clam that had caused this for Frank, it was not even food poisoning. Clams can poison you with a biotoxin that attacks your nervous system. That's what happened to me. It's no fun, trust me. People often think it's just shellfish gone bad, but it's actually a toxin produced by an algae that accumulates in the clam. That's why here we say that you shouldn't eat shellfish from the Mediterranean Sea in the hottest month of the year, so you should only eat it in months that have an R in the name, mm. so from September to April. But this whole thing happened in December, so I doubt it was toxin poisoning. Maybe normal food poisoning, yes, but not Probably not. Poisoning. We have the same thing in New York, and the area where I live is all affected mm -hmm. by the same red tide and algae blooms that we get, so I think probably we can cross food poisoning off the list. Yeah. It's the wrong season for it. Not that it's impossible, but like you said, it's unlikely. What about Russian vodka? Was he poisoned by Chernobyl? Frank preferred Stoli, made in Russia, to mix with his tab. Well, today it's produced in Latvia. Possible. Chernobyl was a huge thing over here. We still have to be careful with mushrooms and game from certain areas, even in Austria. Austria was hit very hard. Mm. Uh, that's a whole other episode. I really want to do the Chernobyl episode one yeah, day. Yeah, we need to do that, for sure. But... I have never heard anything about poisoned grain or radioactive liquor from Russia or anywhere in Europe. Yeah. I think the can of tab he used to dilute his vodka a little bit was probably more dangerous, but he wasn't a laboratory animal, so who can say? Let's see. There's also stress. Frank felt a lot of pressure and stress over the days leading up to the alleged hauntings. What if, combined with his shame and guilt... It just led to severe hallucinations. Absolutely. I just don't see how a ghost or demon or any entity at that could show you past, present, and future events. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. I know. Concussions? After all, Frank Cross had hit his head severely a lot of times during the sort of 20-year span. He got hit between the eyes by a door. He hit his head on the sidewalk in 1968. We don't even know how many times he hit his head in those years in between. He did slip and fall in a restaurant a couple of days before Christmas Eve. People reported him stumbling around the set of Scrooge during the rehearsal. Mm, I think he was a rather clumsy person. And if he was stumbling around the set of Scrooge, I mean, that could be signs of either he was drunk from all the Stolichnaya, or, or he was already having some severe head trauma. Mm. 
And if it was all in his head, it would also make sense that his conscience would shield him from his self-inflicted wounds and injuries and, you know, make up violent spirits who beat him up or hit him with a metal toaster. Yeah, I mean, his his ex even called him lumpy. He had so many injuries, so I feel like, I feel like that track. He should invest in a plastic toaster, except they would melt. Well, honestly, I want to believe there's just so much that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Mm. But I actually do have a theory of my own. Oh, me too. Okay, I don't know if anybody has thought about this, and I'm sure there must be some paranormal subreddit talking about this. But I feel as if this is all fake. I think this was all choreographed by the LA slime ball to cause a psychotic episode for Frank and to take over his job, all the while disgracing Frank, because we know that mental health problems used to be a huge stigma in the 80s. Oh, don't get me started. I agree. And I think that maybe, what if Bryce was slipping him acid? Mm-hmm. That guy, such a yuppie puppy. But also, there's just something in his eyes I don't like. He's no supervillain, but he's creepy. I mean, he could have just simply been drunk. He drank, like, a full glass of Solichnaya with three drops of I was going to say, so. his, his tab in vodka was, you know, it starts out normal. The ratio. Yeah. Mm. It was like clear tab. Maybe he was using clear tab. <laughs> Look, whatever it was, we will probably never know the whole truth. But it led to one of the greatest meltdowns in the history of live television. This has to be one of the most iconic TV moments of all time. Forget the moon landing, forget the fall of the Berlin Wall, forget Nipplegate. Frank Cross, epic speech about the true meaning of Christmas, was what influenced the whole generation. In the middle of the live broadcast of Scrooge, just when Ebenezer threw a coin out of the window, and way before Pope Johannes Paul II could even bless the whole Sulu nation, Frank Cross stepped on stage, looked straight into the camera, and stared into the hearts of the audience. Annie, would you do us the honor of reading his words, because, you know, we all love your dramatic readings? Quote, What are you doing watching television on Christmas Eve? What sort of idiot would schedule a live show on Christmas Eve? You're looking at a guy who told someone today to staple antlers to a mouse's head to further my career. How many of you would try something like that? It's a party. It's Christmas Eve. You can still have fun tonight. Call people you haven't seen. A college friend. An old army buddy. Your personal banker. There's a girl I wish I were with tonight. It's a girl I loved a long time ago. A girl that I still love. It's not too late, is it? I'm not crazy. It's Christmas Eve. It's the one night where we can all act a little nicer. We, we smile a little easier. We, we share a little more. For a couple of hours, we are the people we always hoped we would be. It's really a miracle because it happens every Christmas Eve. And if you waste that miracle, you're going to burn for it, I know. You have to do something. You have to take a chance and get involved. There are people that don't have enough to eat and who are cold. You can go and greet those people. Take an old blanket out to them or make a sandwich and say, Here, I get it now. And if you give, then it can happen. The miracle can happen to you. Not just the poor and hungry. Everybody's got to have this miracle. It can happen tonight for you all. If you believe in this pure thing, the miracle will 
happen and you'll want it again tomorrow. You won't say, Christmas is once a year and it's a fraud. It's not. It can happen every day. You've just got to want that feeling. You'll want it every day. It can happen to you. I believe in it now. I believe it's going to happen to me now. I'm ready for it. And it's great. It's a good feeling. It's better than I felt in a long time. I'm ready. End quote. Beautiful. But if you think that the Christmas miracle was an asshole like Frank Cross changing his life for the better, or Claire ending up with Frank, or Elliot Loudermilk not shooting Frank, or Frank not getting fired over his public freakout, you're wrong. The real Christmas miracle on the 24th of December 1988 was a little boy who hadn't said a word for years suddenly whispered, God bless us, everyone. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Joyous Kwanzaa, wherever you are, whatever you're celebrating this year, I wish you the most joyful holiday and a very, very happy new year. Frohe Weihnachten und einen guten Rutsch ins neue Jahr. See you in 2023. Tschüss.